0: Here. Good to see some of you here for a season that hadn't seen you. It's always a blessing to be together. Well, beloved, we have a, we've had a, a little run here in Genesis, and um, next week, Lord willing, we're going to move into 1 Timothy for a little bit, and we're going to flip back and two between the New Testament and Old Testament for a little bit at a time. And this morning's sermon, uh, we're going to look at the latter part of chapter 4 of Genesis and then also chapter 5, and we're going to see the exact same message that we've seen since chapter 1. We're going to see the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people of God whom He has forever loved, eternally. We're going to show, well the scripture shows us that everything, just as the brothers have prayed and read and sung this morning, about the atonement of Jesus Christ, the sufficiency and the efficacy, that means the fact that it did something, it worked, of the death of Jesus, we're going to see that everything, everything that we know about who God is relates to how He has saved His people. And so we are to read the Old Testament as we've been instructed through the lens of the apostles who are the messengers of Christ to write His Word, to write His letters, to teach His church. And they are the only ones who this present day actually teach the church. The apostles, their writings is what instructs the church. And of course we know that anybody can read the Bible and understand its premise. Anybody, anybody And if it's in their language and they have the ability to comprehend what they hear, can hear the Scripture and and come away with an understanding of what it's saying. Anybody can understand substitution. Anybody can understand the atonement. Anybody can understand these things as constructs, as ideas, as doctrines. Anybody. But only those for whom Christ died, only those by the Spirit who have been made alive in the transformation of the mind, are able to sit securely and rest in the sufficiency of this revelation and these promises. Faith is not knowing the facts. But faith does know the facts. And faith learns the facts. Faith rests in the one who is true. Now I may be splitting hairs, beloved, But I think we've come to a place that has always been, even from the days of Paul, where a lot of heady people sit securely in their knowledge and not in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that's why the beginnings are written for us. To show there is nothing at all that we can do at all to secure our salvation in any way whatsoever. Because Christ alone has saved His people. God has saved His people. And faith knows this. Faith rests in this. Faith understands and apprehends and comprehends that resting in the finished work of Christ is eternal life. Here we have in chapter 4, verse 25, the word of the Lord saying, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain, I was going to call him Cable, instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. So Seth also was a son born, and he called his name Enosh, and at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord, and this is what we picked up last week. In chapter 5 are the generations, are the books of the generations of Adam. Chapter 6 are the generations of Noah, and so on and so forth as we see, and there's a lot of There's a lot of gospel truth in these things. That's the point. Because we see in chapter 7 what God told Noah to do. We see chapter 8, God destroying the world and killing people because the world has grown wicked. And then we see God making a promise again to Noah, just like He made a promise to Adam and Eve. He made a promise to Noah And then we're going to see the same thing happen in Noah's life that happened in Adam's life. There's going to be a division through natural will and volition and desire. Fleshliness always destroys intimacy. Fleshliness and selfishness and and man's wisdom will always destroy the family. It will always destroy everything that God has put together. That He has said, man shall not separate. And we'll see even Noah's sons falling away, one of them specifically. But we'll see God's faithfulness there. And then we will begin to see yet another world unfolding and going the same way it went in the first round of population expansion, whatever you want to call it. And the world in itself goes to evil. And then we'll see God out of that evil world take yet another person of his affection and of his desire named Abram and and he'll take Abram out of the darkness and he'll set him firmly in the light and it's not Abram's faithfulness that matters, it's the faithfulness of God. And that's the message, it really is the message. We've seen it already 18, 17 times in Genesis 1, 2, 3 and 4 and we're going to see it, I'm not going to go through all the genealogies of Adam Because just like in the first portion of Genesis 1, this is not for us to take our science textbooks and walk in footprint. This is not the point of its writing. It's not the point of his writing to tell a detailed summary of what God did chemically and organically, ex nihilo, out of nothing, to create the universe and the cosmos. We, by faith, believe what the Scripture says concerning these things, but the point is faith rests in the power and the promises of God so that there is no way possible for man to have been subject to his own salvation or a participant in his own salvation, just like man was not a participant in his own birth, his own conception. And he's not going to be a participant in his own rebirth. He's going to be the beneficiary of God's power. And so here, last week, we saw Cain. We saw the fact that Cain, a descendant of Adam, the elder son of Adam and Eve, who they thought was... God's promise and Eve and her hubris and Adam and his hubris they're like look what we have created the man that God has promised to crush the head of the serpent remember we're a little conjecture there and then lo and behold the one that they thought was the one of promise became the murderer and then we saw Abel crying out from the ground his blood crying out for justice for vengeance, for wrath, because murder is wicked and evil. And we saw all these things, and now in verse 25, we see that Adam and Eve were given another son, and the son's name was Seth, and the name means anointed, chosen, appointed. And he becomes the, he becomes the substitute for Cain. I mean for Abel. <laughs> Y'all got to watch me today. It's a test. I did it on purpose. No, I didn't. He becomes a substitute for Abel because Cain killed Abel. Now, See, these stories are written in such a way that children can hear them and glean their instruction. Why is it so difficult then for us as adults, as we age, to lose sight of this instruction? Because we critically analyze things to a large degree. We're trying to find types and shadows that aren't there. We're trying to find numbers and sentences and punctuations that leads us like a hidden road map on the back of the Constitution or something. (laughs) We look for things that are not there, and by and large, what we look for the most, we will find. We can make it work. You ever thought about that? These people are so smart. How do they see all that? Because they thought of it and then made it happen. But the scripture is written in a way, especially in this first part of Genesis, that a child can understand that God created the world. He created Adam and Eve distinct from all the other creatures of the world. And he put them in the middle of the garden where he lived. And it was a perfect place and God was awesome and God and the people were awesome and everybody enjoyed fellowship together. Nobody was scared of God. Everybody was naked and nobody even knew it because nobody was ashamed. And God said, you can have everything that I've created for your life. And if you just stay here and you stay in the presence of this garden, you'll never die. Uh, But I'll tell you what will kill you if you mess with these trees over here. If you eat of these trees over here, I'm going to let you die. And matter of fact, I'm going to kill you. Because I've told you not to eat of these trees. I've told you you can have everything in the world that I provide for your life. But not these two trees. You've got 400 billion billion, trillion Z and quadrillion trees. But these two, off limits. Don't touch them. Don't eat them. See, he didn't even say don't touch them, did he? That's what Eve said. God said not to touch them lest we die. And why is this the case? Because the story shows us that God is intimate with His people that He created. He called them good. Why were Adam and Eve good, also upstanding and right and right standing with God? Because God created them to be so, and they were. And then given the opportunity and the freedom of their will, they chose God to die. They chose to die. And that rebellion is not believing in the promise of God for life, see. It wasn't a stupid mistake because they were hungry. They had all they needed. It wasn't a stupid mistake because they felt like God was the killjoy. They had all the wisdom they needed. It was a stupid act of rebellion that they felt they would be like God. Just like Lucifer in his heart according to the scripture says, in his heart, he said, I should stand next to God. Look at me. That's like your reflection in the mirror going, you need to come in here and let me come out there. We'd break that mirror pretty quick, wouldn't we? I'm sure a lot of horror shows have come to that premise or that plot. Or if you drew a picture and it decided to come out and take your place. I mean, you know. You create something and then it wants to share in your glory? Nah. That's righteousness. Righteousness. Destroying that which is not righteous, getting rid of that which is evil, bringing judgment on things that are wrong. That's good. God declares these people good. He gives them everything that they could possibly ever want. But God had a bigger plan for all of this because He is showing that only He can continue and provide and secure life for His people. That if they are left to themselves, even in a state of innocence, they will fall into sin and rebellion. So in that sin and rebellion, the natural, just, and loving consequence is that they must die. That they must die. And so they eat and they're tempted and they eat and they eat willfully of that fruit thinking that they will be like God and then all of a sudden they were like God in a sense and that they knew evil. And then they died. They knew they were naked and then they were ashamed and they hid from God because there he comes. (gasps) The doorbell when you're getting out of the shower and your robe's nowhere to be found or you don't own a robe or whatever it might be. Oh no, you don't just answer the door. That's just not the way it works. So they hid because they were ashamed. They were naked because they were guilty. They they were self-conscious. They knew that if the Lord saw them, not only would He see their nakedness, He would know their guilt. They'd done something. God curses them. But in the curse, He promises what? He promises life through the Son of the seed of the woman, Jesus the Christ. And then Cain comes along. Isn't it obvious? Is this the one? This must be the one. Children would get that. This must be the one that God has promised. He'll fix all this. The chosen one. And don't we have many stories throughout history, even contemporary stories, about the chosen one saving the people? Some of them even dying and coming back to life. I mean, it's not anything new. It's been stolen from antiquity, from the days of creation. The Epic of Gilgamesh. Harry Potter the Chronicles of Narnia, you name it. Anywhere there's a witch, there's a savior. So, I mean, you know, you just sort of look at it, and if there's not a witch, there's a wizard, and you get the hobbits. You got Frodo, going to save his people. So it's natural that we think, oh, there's the savior, came, and we're looking. Imagine, remember, when When Zechariah and Elizabeth, when Zechariah went into his lot, was drawn to give the offering in the beginning of Matthew, and remember, and Luke and the synoptics, and we see the angel of the Lord meeting with him and saying, hey, old man, you're going to have that son that you've been praying for, and his name's going to be John, and he's going to be the one who's the precursor that comes in the spirit of Elijah. He's going to come and say, hey, look, here's the Christ. Here's the one that they thought Cain was. Here's the one they thought Seth was. Here's the one they thought Noah was. Here's the one they thought. David was, here's the one they thought, you know. He's going to come. And what happens? <laughs> he doesn't believe him, so he can't talk. And here, here, here is all of, of these things. Everybody's been looking for the one. And what does the Scripture say about John the baptizer? They say that people were in awe because here is the chosen one. They thought John was the Savior. They thought he was the Christ. And the scripture says, in a vague way, doesn't give us any details, but that people were in awe wondering what this young man would grow up to be and they longed for the day of his maturity. That he would lead them out of captivity. See, we're always wanting to get away from captivity, but we want to get away from captivity unto our own freedoms. And we want to get away from captivity into our own ideologies of what we think we deserve to be able to do in our power and our will. And sometimes we spiritualize that, sometimes we politicize that, sometimes we secularize that, but in all times and in all categories, it is humanistic and it is anti-Christ in everything. I don't care what it is of constitutionality, of which I am a huge fan, it is anti-Christ because it usurps the very... Foundations of who God is and His sovereignty to rule over the world. I'm not saying not to be a steward, but it's not ultimate. It's just a passing phase. It's like kids that want to wear their pajamas all day. It's a passing phase. Well, maybe it's not. (laughs) Cain came and then Cain was the murderer. They looked at Cain, they are probably look, this man's going to be our savior. He was the killer. He wasn't the savior. Abel was righteous. He was approved by God. He was loved by God. He was affirmed by God. So all that Abel did was righteous before God in obedience by faith because he believed the promises of God. Cain did not believe the promises of God. Cain believed that he in himself was a zealot for the Lord and that he would do all that was necessary and that he would secure the promises of God in his own life. Remember Hagar and Sarah? Remember John the Baptist's demise? What happened? He was arrested. And Herod, in his boastful arrogance, the king of nothing. I'll give you whatever you want. Because I'm that kind of guy. What you want? New, new horse? New hair bow? Lobster? I want. John the Baptist head on a platter. Oh, oh! Couldn't go back on his word. He looked like a punk. So John gets the word, and what does John say? <gasps> I'm gonna die. I knew I had to decrease. I gotta get out of the way of I'm gonna walk next to him or behind him or three hundred people back. I didn't know I was gonna have to die. I gotta decrease. He must. He's the bridegroom. He gets the bride. I'm just the messenger. I'm just the announcer. Hey, wedding's coming up. Here's the bridegroom. Here he comes. woo Here he is. The Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. And what does John do? Hey, he starts texting some folks and messaging some folks and TikToking some folks. He's like, dogs, y'all got to go out there and figure out if this Jesus is really the guy we think he is because they're about to cut my head off and I don't really want to die for nothing. If he is, I settle myself. If he's not, let's just double check. John the Baptist was not. Christ, he even confessed that. And no man born outside of being the Son of God could ever lead his people to freedom. And beloved freedom is not liberty in this life. Freedom is not a, an internal righteousness of perfection or godliness or religion that we walk in a way that pleases the Lord to the point that we've become more like Jesus. That's like taking, this is going to be very crude, I'm about to say, but this is how I think right now. I got a lot of sleep last night. That extra hour I love these days. That's like going outside and picking up a plop off the ground for your dog, molding it into a steak, and serving it. You can make it look, you can season it. It's still poop. It's dung. Beloved, we are never anywhere close to the real thing. Jesus Christ and His righteousness is credited to our account. The theological term for that is imputation. It's imputed to us. It's not. We're not made righteous. We're declared righteous. By what law? By what standard? By, by what justice are, are we declared righteous? Jesus, who sinned not, born not of a man in this world but divinely brought into the world through a virgin, took the credit for our sin. He was not guilty of sin, but the sin guilt of His people was imputed to Him, was credited to Him, and then God crushed Him on the cross. He died. But He could not stay dead in His flesh because He was not guilty of sin. For the wages of sin is death. Jesus had no sin, so He died in the place of someone else as a substitute. He died in the place of His people. And when He died, their sins were paid for forever and ever and ever. And every sin for which He died is paid for. And any sin for which He died, God the Father cannot condemn. So, He substituted Himself for our guilt, and then He substitutes His righteousness to us. Double imputation. Again, the guilt of our sin to Christ. He dies on the cross. And the perfection of Jesus Christ and His divine human self, His perfection, His glory, all of it credited to His people. It is credited to his people. So the birth of Seth points to this. Children can understand this. Well, Cain wasn't the guy. Abel, of course, is not the guy. He's dead. Seth. The substitute. Seth is a substitute. Seth is the promise of life. Seth is the Savior to come. That's that's the point. And then... In verse 26 of chapter 4, we see that people begin to worship and call upon the name of the Lord when Seth had his son. Now, we know the lineage of Seth. Through Seth comes Noah. And we've read Peter, right? We've read Peter's letters. We know what Peter tells to his Jewish brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ that Noah was a type of Christ that the flood of the earth was like a baptism of judgment, and that Noah escaped, and his family escaped judgment, not because they were smart enough or wise enough or quick enough. I mean, it took him a hundred years to build a boat, for crying out loud. It's like me putting in closets in my house. <laughs> my great-grandchildren will have that house where there's a closet in it. Um, you know, and so Then the boat in and of itself is like a Christ. It's a shadow of Christ because only those who are found in the ark are the ones who will not die by just wrath. And see, when you teach our children, when we learn these stories, we're able to tie them together to Jesus clearer and clearer the more they learn them. Beloved, the best thing we could do is read the Bible for ourselves, not study it. I remember I used to teach when I was in my early 20s. I had, a, I, had a, I had a mentor in ministry. I won't say the faith. But I had a mentor in ministry who every few months he'd call. And you know he'd always remind me of this adage that the difference between reading the Bible and studying the Bible is that when you study, you have a pencil. Snap that in half. I don't, I don't believe that. And I haven't followed that precept but maybe just a few months. Because I found myself... Academically parsing my wisdom into the knowledge of, into scripture, rather than letting the scripture just do its work in me. See, God says that His Spirit will teach us through the reading of the Word. We don't have to dive into all this stuff. We don't have to. Nothing wrong with it, unless it takes precedence over the reading of Scripture. But beloved, if your children are familiar with the narrative of the New Testament, just the Gospels, they'll know more theology and have a handle on the expressions of theological truths than any doctorate peer that I have. I can prove it to you. Just let your children read the Bible. Here's Seth. Why was Seth given? Chapter 5 the generations of Adam, when God created man, He made him in the likeness of God, male and female, He created them and He blessed them. He approved of them. He loved them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Now keep in mind how long that was. 130 years. Now, they, aren't, they, aren't, they aren't two-month years. <laughs> in the Jewish calendar, when Moses wrote years, he, in this genealogy, he got the ages correct. And we can look at antiquity. We know people used to live a long time. But Seth was a long time coming. And all of a sudden, here's Seth. And then the days after Adam, he fathered Seth, were 800 more years And he had many other sons and daughters, thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. I have said out of my own mouth before, Oh, you ever want to go to sleep, read the genealogy of the Old Testament? That's a joke, you know that right. And I realized this week as I was reading through these things, that's not, we are not to take lightly the genealogy of the Old Testament. We are not to ignore them. They're not for us to put up on a family tree and try to figure out all these timelines. That's not the point of it. Where's Cain's genealogy? We just read it last week, didn't we? And then it just sort of goes away. There's a point there, and I'll make it at the end of the sermon. But there's a point here, too. Adam died. Abel died. Cain's going to die. Seth's going to die. Everybody's going to die. Anybody out of the image of man is going to die. Anybody born in the image of man is going to die. Because everybody born in the image of man is corrupt and depraved and sinful. No matter how they act or what they do, they're sinful. And here is the reason. Let me just go ahead and tell you. Here's the reason Seth was born is because God had made a promise to His people that through the seed of the woman shall come the Savior. And there are thousands of years, thousands of years from Seth to Jesus, but it is through this promise that Jesus the Christ comes. And not everybody born into Seth was, a, was eventually converted or regenerated or saved. Not everybody born into Abraham, of course we know that, because Paul teaches us that to the Romans as well as to the Galatians and others. We know that everybody born into Abraham is not Abraham's children, or not Abraham's children. i got to get my verbs correct. But only those who are in Christ are the true children of Abraham. Abraham wasn't a people anyway. He, was not, he had no genealogy. We don't see the land of Ur through Abraham. We don't, see, we don't see the Chaldeans up to Abraham. starts with the promises of God. So man, as, they, as we work and live in this earth, mankind... We do and go and do, and we have our own ideas and our own philosophies and our own understanding, our own wisdom and our own traditions, our own religion, our own expectations, our own interpretations, and we just look at here, look at here, look at there, and somehow we think that populace or historical record gives some sense of solidarity or security or worse, authority to what we know about certain topics. But it's not the case. God alone is the authority. And the simple reality is that the Word of God alone, as written is the only means through which God will show us Himself and give us the rest by His Spirit to sit still and be at peace in His salvation, in His promises, in His power. God loves His people. God loves His people. He loved Adam and Eve. He provided for them a bloody offering, and covered their nakedness as a symbol of Jesus Christ, who would be the ultimate and only true bloody offering. And we're going to go to Hebrews 9 and Romans 5 today, and we're going to talk about these things. I said many times over, but recently I've said that the opposite of love is indifference. And that is a fact. It's not an opinion. It's not love and hate and cold and hot. I mean, this this is elementary. Think for a minute. Love relates to passion, relates to affection, relates to desire, relates to focus, relates to attention, relates to something active. It's not a feeling, it's an action. Love has never been anything we feel. That's called butterflies, anxiety, diarrhea, indigestion, whatever it is. It's what we do. I would say that the feeling of affection is... (laughs) Can I say this in the economy of grace? Idolatry. Okay, that's what that is, and I love it. I love it. I love it when my family and my friends and my and my brothers and sisters in Christ just tell me they love me. It's it's good. Don't you love it? That's why Facebook's so profitable. Who ever thought that would be the biggest drug in the world? Yet in the '90s, when somebody went, you think that dude needs to. Get a life. It's just prophetic. But love is what we do, it's an action. Indifference. God was indifferent to Cain, He had no regard for him because He did not love him. That's a picture of that. That sovereign work. God receiving His people is an act of love, an act of blessing. Now, I know we can talk about temporal ideologies and things of that nature, but for the theology imposed upon us in sovereignty in Genesis chapters 1 through 5, we have to stick to these firm understandings and these firm definitions because God knows his people and that foreknowledge is love. That's why we use the word when Adam knew his wife. It's an action, it's intimacy. And Cain was born, and then Abel was born, and then Seth was born, and then Cain knew his wife, and then Enoch was born. The difference is the opposite of love, because even hate is a result of passion, love, and interest, and affection. We hate that which opposes that that we love, right? We love our family. Someone bothers our family, we hate them. We love our stuff, someone bothers our stuff, we hate them. Hurricanes blow off, we love our roof, hurricane blows off, we hate hurricanes. God loves His name, loves His holiness, loves His glory. He hates sin. He hates sinners. God loves His people. He hates those who are not His people. See, we think that sometimes these words are mutually exclusive and in certain contexts they must be, but not in every context. Now, this is a a beginner's, what I've just done is sort of like a beginner's activity in philosophical thinking. And in it, it holds no credibility. It holds no authority. The Word of God holds the authority, not how we process it. We love God as truth. We love God's truth. Therefore, we hate that which opposes God's truth as God's people. Do we not? You ever had a family member that somebody started talking about in town? Or worse, get this, they don't know it's your friend or family. You ever had somebody come up to you? Oh, did you hear about something? something, something, something? And you, oh, and their face. You know, it's like priceless. If you could have like eyeballs that recorded videos. You know, that's my cousin, right? Oh, oh, oh. I mean, it's... Did you just get constipated instantaneously? That's what they look like. They don't know what to do. And it aggravates you. Why are you talking trash about my loved one? Don't talk about my mama. You know, in the third grade, fourth grade, that was what wars were started over. And you didn't have to say anything. You just had to say, your mama. You know? And it was on. Fires, nuclear weapons, fallout, all of it. It was over. It's just the dog. We hate those who hate those we love. God. We love God. Why? Because He first loved us. So we do hate the things and the actions and the attitudes and the people who oppose Him by default. But yet we're told to love our enemies, to serve them and to give to them and to pray for them and to care for them. Oh, wow! How strange is that? And here we live in this life. And here we have chapter 5 when the generations of Adam began the whole human race. Here we are. And every single person at some time in their life, no matter where they are, have gone through the same little exercises that we've just gone through insecurely and unprofitably. But what chapter 5 really shows me is that God loves His people. And that God's love is the action of redemption and the promise of creating a people, and a people for Himself, a people for His glory. Ultimately, through these people shall come His Son that will actually, literally, and effectually deal with sin once and for all. Satisfy His justice and His wrath and His judgment And appease his hate. So chapter 5 is a record of the information about God's people. Those he created and through whom he promised to make his people fit for himself. In Exodus 33, we see these very things. In Isaiah 45, I'll just read uh, verses to you. It says, The Lord says to Moses, Exodus 33, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, And I know you by name. The Lord says to Cyrus in Isaiah 45, I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. See, that's interesting. But some people, well, you know, this is the Old Testament. These are prophets, you know, God's people. Well, how about Jesus in John 10? I know them. And I know them by name. That's what I've always told my children and other young people throughout the years who have been related to our household. And they always come and say, you know, my friend, my friend, my friend, my friend. It's always my friend, my best friend, my best, best friend. What's their name? Oh, Sally? John? Oh, yeah? What's their last name? Mm hmm. See, we don't even really know the people we call friends, do we? What about the middle name? But the Lord knows us. And I'm not talking about names. The point of this is that God is intimate with His people. Individually and corporately. Christ did not blanket die for a generalized people that would fit into a number. He specifically died for a specific and particular people named. Individually and together as the elect. The Word of God is showing us now a line of people who, has shown us a line of people who hate God, the Canaanites, and then all of Genesis is going to show the interaction of that, and then the Old Testament is going to show the people of God who are at odds with the people of the serpent even in a temporal sense, even in a cultural sense. You're going to see people who hate the Lord and people who worship the Lord. And what is the the condition? What is one thing that is absolutely guaranteed? It reminds me of Paul individually, but as guaranteed to the people of Israel throughout their entire existence. And it was that God promised them Messiah. And God promised that they would suffer greatly because of it. And everywhere Israel was left to themselves, they always chose the world. And God corrected them because He loved them by disciplining them. And how did He discipline them? Through the Assyrians, through the Babylonians, through the Egyptians, and through thousands of years of slavery. Abuse, death, and destruction. But there was always salvation in the midst of all those things. This is the Old Testament story. There was a remnant for whom God had favor. And He saved them out. He pulled them out of darkness and set them into the kingdom of His light. This is a picture. And this is what Genesis 1 through 5 has shown us. And then after that, we're going to see an entire line of people who hate God and live according to the flesh and who will fill the earth. Yet God always has a remnant that he will prepare for the wilderness journey, and at the end of the wilderness journey is always a Sabbath rest. The day that has no end. The hope of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so, the majority of the world falls into the category of the line of Cain, if you will. The majority of the world falls into the line or the category of unbeliever. The majority of the world falls into the category of reprobation. The majority of the world falls into the category, but it is not a distinct difference between the people who are in reprobation and those who are in the covenant of grace. The only difference is God's will. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. You see the difference in the good news versus a good opportunity? We're going to talk about that. Good news is God saying, I will save you. And then God declaring to the apostles, I have saved you. Versus, you better do this if you want to live. How did that go with the first couple in innocence? Not too well. How does it go through the prophets? You ever read the prophets? Oh my, you have to really thumb through to find the Jubilee, right? It's like, you know, I love to go to the Prophets and the Psalms and, and before service and read pre But sometimes you just land on something in the Prophets you just don't want to start a worship service with. Because you have to read, you have to keep reading so you find the promise, you find the Jubilee, you find the redemption, you find the hope, you find the good news, you find the good report, you find the gospel of Christ. Self-wisdom, self-righteousness, humanitarian goodness, religion, all sorts of wickedness and fleshliness and selfishness. The flood is going to come and provision is only going to be made for eight people. And no matter where you fall in the line of that, the picture of that is very clear. God made provision to save those for whom He had mercy. And for a hundred years, Noah preached righteousness and preached the gospel and preached salvation and preached, dude, just get in the boat. And not only were they unable, they were unwilling. Because that's an insane thing. Because when we build our lives, we build our treasures, and we build our faith, and we build our theologies, and we build our doctrinal walls, and we think that we've got it sound, God's going to step on them like an ant anthill. But even ants bite us. There's not going to be a contest when God steps on our false religions and our labels, and everything else. The flood is coming, but God's going to only make provision for eight. Seth is a type of this provision for a few people, for the remnant, who in and of themselves are nothing but sinners, worthy of all wrath and justice, but by God's love for them, His foreknowledge for them, His eternal grace and hope for them, He will save them. So Seth is born a sinner after his father Adam. And there's a lot of theology here. I could get into the imago Dei, the image of God. I think I've settled that. The only human being that exists in the image of God is Jesus Christ. And the imputation of His righteousness to us credits us. And we can talk about thinking, we can talk about rule, we can talk about all these other things. The pictures are shadows. Beloved, we are sinners. And if we're not found in Christ... We're not in the image of God. Seth is a sinner after his father Adam. Yet he's also a sign after the promise of the Father. And he's also a Savior as a shadow of the promise of Christ. And this proves that God is faithful and that God has the plans of men in His hand and none of the plans of men will divide God's true people from Himself. You see that Romans 8, it's become cliche. Isn't that sad that Scripture becomes cliche? Isn't it sad that we use Scripture to such a degree to illustrate an absolute truth that it becomes almost so redundant that it's, oh yeah, it's like coffee table Scripture or needlepoint Scripture or bumper sticker Scripture. You don't want to talk about t-shirt Christianity. But the power behind the reality that God cannot even separate us from his love. Because he has separated his son from life and satisfied his own wrath. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And what happens in these situations is there's some things that there's some things that invade us. Historically invade us, you know amoraldo emeraldism and all this other kind of stuff. He's French theologian Oh. And there's all types of philosophies that come along to theological ideas to make God work for humanistic ideology and thinking and all this. The thing is is that some people think that salvation falls into one of several categories: that Christ died for everybody, and everybody's going to heaven. The Bible doesn't, doesn't say that. That's called general salvation or general atonement. So if we think about the substitutionary picture of Seth. He's to substitute for Abel, but really is a picture of who Christ is, who will be born through the Virgin Mary, who will substitute for his people as an object of wrath. See, and I can make parallels showing that we're all Cain and Abel as a type of Christ. I can also show that the elect are like Abel and the world is like Cain. I can also say that the elect are going to die because Cain can represent sin and we die. (laughs) You see? We can pull these parallels together and would be correct. The application is the same in all of them, is that we trust and hope in the power of God and His sovereignty to save us from our sins through Jesus Christ alone. This is it. This is why Paul said so eloquently, not. He even said, I don't speak eloquently. I can barely speak in a mumble and a stutter and all these other things. And, 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 but I, say, I stand to know Christ and Him crucified alone. And I preach that lest the cross of Christ lose its power. If I preach anything else other than the Christ and what He's accomplished, then I have actually stated by my preaching that there is something else beside Christ that can accomplish it. Some people believe in a general atonement. That atonement meaning at one. So, in other words, if I could put it in a simpler term, the way we are made right before God is that Christ died for our sin, and we are at one with Him. That's where that word comes from. We are at one with God and in His presence. We are not kicked out of Eden. We are back in Eden, and we are still sin sinners and we are still guilty. But that guilt has been satisfied, and now we have been credited the righteousness of Christ, so that we can be in the presence of God. We have to wear the right stuff to be in the presence of God. And Christ Jesus and His righteousness is the right attire. Some people think that everybody's sins are paid for because Jesus died for everybody. This was predominantly pushed forward in history by a man named Jacob Arminius but it was happening in Paul's day. Then some people think about the atonement in a hypothetical way, hypothetically universal. In other words, you know, everybody has the opportunity or everybody has this... I don't want to get into the dort and all this kind of stuff, so I'm trying to reserve what I say, but let's just put it this way... The cross pays for the sins of the elect, but then yet there's a supremacy to which it is sufficient for every human being in the world and we just have to stand in that mix. Now this is strange because the scripture teaches specifically and particularly the efficacy of Christ's redemption. Now, we can debate these things. We can talk about them. Some people think, That the atonement is limited. That means it's limited only to those for whom it was intended. That means when Christ died on the cross, He actually died for certain people, individually and collectively, certain people. Because the atonement, by definition, means that there is expiation, there is forgiveness, there is redemption... There is satisfaction, there is uh, propitiation, wrath is satisfied, guilt is satisfied, debts are paid, life is granted. So if the Bible were to be looked at, and the instructions of the Old Testament promises and the New Testament apostles were to teach us about the atonement, then which of these, and there are more views, there are many more views, but which of these views are most biblical? And the answer is limited atonement. That Christ literally died for all who belong to Him. Now, that's not my opinion. And you can go back and listen to the the teaching of John's gospel. You can go back and listen to to the last two weeks of my Romans reading. And you can go back and listen to, to John 6 and some other places. Jesus teaches this. Because the scripture says that all for whom Christ died, the Father has given them to him, and all that the Father has given to him, they will come to him. They will believe in him. When? When is my husband going to believe? When is my son going to believe? When is my wife or mother or grandmother or friend or neighbor or enemy or coworker going to believe? When the Lord has appointed that. Preach the gospel. Let God be the author of salvation. Knowing that you have eternal life is not discovering that you are an elect person. It's believing in the promises of God for His elect people through Jesus Christ. Resting in it. That's what faith is. It is a divine work of God whereby He changes the mind. That's called what? Repentance. And He grants faith The mind is no longer worrying and working to its own ability, but it's resting in the power of God and His ability. Wow, I finally see it. Praise the Lord. I've been working so hard for this. Regeneration is knowing that you belong to Christ. Your mind has been changed. You're no longer tossed to and fro. We're whacking stuff. We're resting. And I think, well, where, where, where do we go with this? What's the point? The point is, this is the beginnings of the Word of God. This is what God has written down first. This is to put the foundation under our feet when we're climbing the stairs of life. We're not falling to the bottom anymore. And if we do, we're standing on the same step that we will stand in the day of glory because it's a level playing field. We thought we were climbing, but we're really sitting still. We're standing in the promises of God. And that's become cliche. It's like Paul would say to the Corinthians. You build and build and build and your ministry is doing all sorts of things. But when you build your ministry, when you build into the lives of people, when you invest around people with material that's not the gospel of free and sovereign grace, it's going to burn. That's why Paul dares us to fight over words and to be divided over things and to, and to backbite and to make our own stomp feet and play elsewhere type mindset. We cannot do that and call ourselves sovereign grace believers in good conscience. If our conscience bears witness to that action, I question your, your conversion. But yet I'm not God, so I can't say what I can say is that the Bible says we deal with these things accordingly, no matter the justification, the pharisaical justification of self-righteous fools who dare spit in the face of Christ who paid for their sins. You see? And that's the tone of self-righteousness. Wow, that's strong because that's the tone of self. That's the tone of pride, humility cowers and crumbles in the face of grace. Not as one who is fearful and ashamed, but one who is broken and glad. Thank you, Father, for your grace and for your mercy. In chapter 9 of Hebrews, let's read chapter 9 of Hebrews verses 11 through 28. But when Christ, and there's a but there, so we got eight and a half chapters to deal with, but We read through that a couple of years ago. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Listen to that. That's important. Not of this creation. Christ entered once and for all into the holy places. The presence of God not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He bought it, and it's His. What is that it? Us. He purchased the people. For if the blood of goats and bulls, or the offerings of Cain, or the religion of reformers, or uh, uh, the doctrines of, uh, of theologians, and all these other things... If these things, if attitudes and actions and intentions and affections all mattered, what? If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, in other words, it washes you ceremonially for the right type of worship, what does that mean? We've seen that. That only through death comes the remission of sins. The sacrifices of the temple were to remind the priest and the people that the wages of sin is death and that the work of man will never suffice and that God requires it continually death, 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 death death, to appease His wrath and an eternity of sacrifices will never satisfy the wrath of God. Yet one sacrifice does. How much more the blood of Christ, verse 14, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, He is the mediator. He is the go-between of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive. See, mediation brings people together. That's at one That's atonement. He is the mediator of a new covenant, of a new promise, of a new contract, so that those who are called, effectively snatched and dragged into the person of Christ, may receive the promised eternal inheritance, something that you deserve by blood. Not death, but since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. The man who made the will must be dead. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first contract or promise or covenant was inaugurated without blood. Thus it was necessary for the copies, for the shadows, for the substitutes of the true heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ. What is the better sacrifice? Verse 24. Here it is. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies, which are shadows, which are fake representations of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God, huh? On our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year, year after year, with blood not of his own. Isn't that amazing that the blood of humanity was not even sufficient to be the shadow? Because a goat and a squirrel and a dove and a sack of flour has more sacrificial power than the blood of a sinner. Nor was it to offer Himself repeatedly. As the high priest enters holy places, verse 25, year after year, not with blood of his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundations of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, Jesus Christ. And just as it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes the judgment, that has been taken out of context a thousand times from Sunday. So Jesus Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to bring those to Himself who eagerly await for Him. What is faith but resting in the promises of God and waiting for that day? Waiting for Christ. Waiting for life. Who is Jesus? And it's not just what we see in Hebrews 9. It's all over the place. Uh, Romans 4 talks about Abraham being justified. Verse 4 of Romans 4 says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he's got something to boast about, something to brag about, something to talk about, but not before God, because none of that matters. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, when you work, you earn your wage. His wages are not counted as a gift, but what's due him. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. Why? Because we're resting in the promises of God. The power of God unto salvation, the power of God to create his people, the power of God to secure life, the power of God to satisfy his own justice and wrath. Why? The power of God to love His people effectually and to present us and make us fit for His presence. This is what faith looks to. And we don't work for that. We don't do anything. There's no trigger. There's no trigger that causes Jesus to die for us. There's no trigger, for, there's no trigger at all that we do that causes the atonement to work for us. It's worked for us. And God's Word can be boiled down to this. Trust my promises. Trust my promises. And you'll live. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, listen to this, verse 7 and 8 of Romans 4. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. And this is from the Psalms. And whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. How can God not count my sin against me? Because He counted Jesus guilty for it. And crushed Him. It's that simple. But it's not easy, it's not in our power to rest in that. Only the Spirit of God can cause us to believe. So what does this show us? The picture of Cain ends, the picture of Seth begins... Seth's line continues as a picture of God's glory that is promised to all the children of God in Jesus Christ. The wicked die and the righteous live by faith and the power and the promises of God alone. This is a simple summary. So now the question is, and I know I've gone long, so what? What now? Who cares? What difference does it make? Here's the point. And we have the apostles to thank for this. We are a people for God's glory by His power. And God has established His people to be together under the prescription of His Word. That is why there is a genealogy of families. Not just a list of faithfuls. Because it is a picture of what the church will be eternally. God is faithful to save His people, therefore we should be able to. Let me just just list some things off. We should be able to, as God's people, rest in an eternal Sabbath. We should be able to know God in truth through the Word. We should be able to be righteous in Jesus Christ and understand that "Ah, when we sin, it does not affect that standing, but it is evil. We should be able to have unity in the grace of God, in the gospel of Christ. We should be able to labor in our worship, which includes serving one another, which is the only, only, let me say this again, only way we can actually serve Christ. You can't serve Christ by lighting a candle and praying and reading a devotion. You can't serve Christ by watching a sermon. You can only serve Christ by being with Christ's people and helping one another. We're able to Deal gently with one another because God has dealt gently with us and harshly with His Son. We're able to forgive one another. We're able to rejoice in trials. We're able to understand and patiently teach each other the truth. We're able to learn with discernment and admit when we were wrong. We're able to hope in God's promises. We're able to be content, to be gentle, to be kind, to be in Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Therefore, we are able to put away paranoia and suspicion and assumption, which is all of Satan, period. All the time. We're able to put away these things. We're able, therefore, to make right judgments by keeping the gospel continually in our hearts and minds and then serving as we're called to do because God first loved us. Because we've been created by the Word of God who spoke and all that He said came into being, who spoke and declared it all good, who spoke and prophetically revealed the fall, who spoke and promised life in Himself, who spoke and established the covenant, the promise, the contract of grace, who spoke and all that is became, and who spoke and His Word became flesh, and who spoke and we know who He is, and we know Him now, and we have seen Him, He who has spoken, and He who continues to speak, and in Him we rest And this is eternal life. Creation of our eternal life by the Word of God now is outside of our knowledge. It is spoken into us by the creative power of God. It is outside of our power. It is spoken into us by the power of God alone. It is outside of our our desires and our abilities and our transformation and our information and everything else. It is outside of us. Our redemption is outside of us. It is all of God Who is set apart because He is not us. That's what holy means. So now we are set apart and now we are holy because He has set us in Himself. We will be holy for He is holy. We will be set apart for He is set apart. We will be brought to Himself because we cannot accomplish a relationship with Him or intimacy with Him or contact with Him outside of Him bringing us to Himself. And He has already set us apart and there will never be ever be death in us but beloved until he sets apart our minds and repentance and faith and regeneration we cannot claim to be alive because we only know life through the creation I mean through the creator We can only have life through the Creator. We cannot look at the creation and say, okay, I can figure this out. We cannot figure this out. God has established it. So God is speaking now to show His people all the things related to life and to godliness. And the Word of God is like a two-edged sword. It is living and breathing. And it causes life for the people of God. And it causes things for the people of God. It causes faith. And if it's not effectual, it's because that's what God determined in that moment. If it is effectual, then we praise Him for it. We rejoice in anything. So in this birth of Seth, we see Adam and Eve weren't not able to even create life. God must do it. Salvation, proof of regeneration, are not what we have done and what we have come to conclude about what God has provided But salvation and proof of regeneration is resting in what God has promised. And it is our landing zone. It is our promised place. It is our Sabbath rest. It is the presence of the divine. It is our truth. It is our hope. It is our wisdom. He is our righteousness. So in all of that, we are able to know we have eternal life. Because of Christ. And beloved, I'm going to tell you something. It's the only thing that really will keep us moving in this world. And I'm not talking about spending days becoming theologically rich. I'm talking about spending every moment of every day as we have opportunity rejoicing in the sufficiency of the death and the life of Jesus. His loving mercy. Remember we talked about at the beginning about how sometimes the feeling we have, we mistake with love. Beloved, I would not want that feeling to ever leave me in regards to the Lord, but it does. You ever felt like you just weren't loved? Thank God it's not about how we feel, but it's about what Christ has finished. And He's finished it by laying His life before the Father in His humanity perfectly perfectly accomplishing all that the Father sent Him to do, and dying on the cross as a substitute for His people, as the appointed one, as the anointed one. And that is what the table does for us. It brings us together, reminding us that we are all alike in two ways. We are all worthy of wrath, but we have all received mercy through Christ. And we remember Him, and so it's important It's important for us to take these things truly as the Lord intended them and to remember the Christ who has given His life for His people. Prepare our hearts for the table together, beloved. Let's pray. We thank You, Father, for Jesus Christ. We thank You, Father, for the Gospel. For teaching us the good report. Thank You, Father, for the Glory that You've set before us for helping us to see, Lord, that even when our hearts and our minds and our bodies fail, Father, even when we are in despair, even, Father, that we find times in this world where we just are so uncertain and we have anxiety and we have anger and frustration. Father, we know that it is sin, but, Lord, You carry us through. And You've promised us that when we are together as the body and Your Word is taught, that You will secure us in the truth and You will correct us and teach us. You will correct and teach Your elders, Your under-shepherds, to oversee the joy of Your people. Father, You will help us all to grow to maturity. For none of us are mature, but we will grow. So help us to grow. And Lord, the foundation of that growth is the joy and the sufficiency of the peace of Jesus Christ with, to which the world does not grasp does not comprehend, but Father, You cause us to comprehend it. Lord, help us be about ministering to each other. First and foremost, Lord, to cause us to share this grace with one another, to encourage each other in the faith, to keep running the good race and fighting the good fight and competing in the good competition, knowing that You alone have already set across the finish line. Jesus Christ, Your Son, has set across the finish line. He is... Torn down the ribbon. He has broken down the curtain. He has torn away all the opposition. He has disposed of the debt of death. And the letter has come to its end And the spirit that you give us is life. Lord, your people have ears to hear. Help us to hear. And Father, we pray for supernatural work in our hearts and minds and in those around us that we labor before you, that you would be glorified in all that you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. You. you can come.